I was a kid, about 13 or so, I was told I needed to wear glasses. Now, it's not just that I was mildly short-sighted, it's that without specs, I couldn't see anything. Honestly, everything without specs is a big blur. It's interesting how you can still learn to recognise people by their walk, their stance, their gait, their body language, everything else that allows you to still recognise people without the need to be able to see them in full HD 2020 vision. Because I hate wearing glasses. hate it. I hate the marks they leave on my nose, the itching on my ears, the scaffolding around my face. I hate that I can't run in them or play squash. I hated it so much I didn't wear them in high school, even though I couldn't see a damned thing. I used to scrunch my fist into a ball and then look through the small hole in between your fingers to see anything because apparently when you're short-sighted your iris doesn't contract so if you make yourself a tiny tiny little hole and actually put a pinprick through a piece of paper hold it up to your eyes you can see better and I used to do that all the time rather than wear glasses the second thing I did after I got my first regular job was to make an appointment at the opticians for contact lenses, which I still wore today. Obviously not the same per, that would be silly. One of the reasons for not wearing glasses, though, was not to be called Joe 90. Oh, and for those that cur, the first thing I did with that first paycheck was buy a CD player. It's a testament of sorts, to the work of Jerry Anderson, that a show made in the late 1960s had entered the popular consciousness so much that kids in the 80s were still called Joe 90. I mean, sure, it was in a derogatory fashion, but still. See, the intent behind Joe 90 was to make kids feel good about being a smart-ass know-it-all who wore specs. Sadly, that backfired. Joe 90 is the least loved of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's Super Marionation series. And I wonder if some of that isn't down to be mocked for looking like the title character in the playground. I looked like him more than most, featuring, as I did, a platinum blonde mop of her, just like Joe. Which is a shame, as Joe 90 is a very much a boy's own adventure series, in the manner of Eagle Comics' Dan Durr and Valiant. Jerry himself had contributed to Boy's Own Adventure Strips with TV21, a comic magazine strip based upon his own TV shows. Some have even speculated that the Boy's Own feel to Joe 90 may be a reason it isn't as well-loved as his other shows. The Thunderbirds had Lady Penelope, Captain Scarlet had the Angel, Stingray had Marina, but there are no regular female characters of note in Joe 90. It's an odd criticism, given that whilst the format is credited to both Jerry and Sylvia, the characters are all credited to Sylvia alone. So one has to wonder why Sylvia didn't make at least one of the leads a woman, if she felt that would make a difference to the success of the show. Production of Joe 90 overlapped with the wrapping up of Anderson's last series, the superlative Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. 
and ported over a lot of the same personnel, many of which stayed with Anderson for many a year. It's amazing to think that a small trading estate in the middle of Slough, not exactly a glamorous location, gave birth to over a decade of continuous television production that created some of the most inventive and innovative shows of the 50s and 60s. The opening episode of Joe 90, The Most Special Agent, was written by Jerry and Sylvia, with direction by Desmond Saunders. From the beginning, Joe 90 is as impressively mounted as any Anderson production, demonstrating the constant upswing the shows were on. Sets and marionettes have come a long way, and just from the opening few minutes, we can see a production that could have been live action. We have a cold open, a new approach for Anderson, in which a nine-year-old boy, Joe McLean, is wired up to a large device called the Big Rat Brain Impulse Galvanoscope Record and Transfer, invented by his adopted father, Professor Ian Mac McLean. They're demonstrating the Big Rat to Sam Louver and its potential in that it can transfer the knowledge and experience of a grown man onto a small child. As with all of these kinds of shows... Mac is experimenting on himself and his small son. Hmm. Transferring all of Mac's knowledge and experience into his own son. That's a bit icky when you think about it. Would you really want to possess all of the knowledge your father possesses? Think about that for a second. And then, after you've washed your brain out... Come back and listen to this clip as Mac explains its potential to Sam. There she is, Sam. The big rat. The big rat? The brain impulse galvanoscope. Record and transfer. With respect, Mac, I find it hard to believe that it has the capability you've described. It has, Sam. You'll see. Odd, Joe. Good. Now we can begin. Is this it, Dad? This is it. You know what to do. Now, Sam. I have recorded my brain patterns on that reel of tape. So, electronically, it now stores my knowledge and my experience. In a moment, I'm going to transfer that knowledge and experience to little Joe. Okay, Dad. I'm ready. Relax, Joe. Don't answer me. Just relax. Relax completely.
world opened there led straight into the opening credit theme. The music again was by Barry Gray, but with guitar licks by Vic Flick, who provided the same function on the James Bond theme for Dr. No. This was the first foray from Anderson into the spy genre, so bringing in a man familiar with the sound of Bond wasn't a bad decision. The theme is yet another winner from the Anderson canon and from Gray himself, as it feels more like a man-from-uncle-type spy show than the science fiction of the earlier shows. The laboratory is located underneath a normal, unassuming cottage in Dorset, and Sam immediately tells Mac that the Big Rat will be bought by the allegedly altruistic government agency WIN, the World Intelligence Network. They then want to use the Big Rat to have an agent locate and retrieve a Russian aircraft, the MiG-242, the fastest, most advanced weapons system in the air today. Being unlike anything in the possession of the American or British governments, this MiG, flying at supersonic speeds and backed by unmatched firepower, is too dangerous to be left in unenlightened hands. Joe is to have the brain patterns of a captured Russian MiG pilot implanted upon his brain, and he's to use his innocence and guile to get that MiG. The catch is Joe will only have this knowledge when he wears the special NHS glasses provided by Wynn, and, armed with some other special equipment, Joe is named the most special agent. Where the 90 comes from in all of this is anyone's guess. Instantly, though, you can see the problem with Joe 90 when viewed in the cold light of the 21st century. It's impossible to watch today without wondering who the hell would endanger the small child like this. So, let's get that out of the way. This was made in 1968. The idea was Joe was the viewer's avatar, and the Andersons wanted the audience to imagine they were the ones having these adventures. So, to watch and enjoy Joe 90, it's best to put modern-day child labour laws out of your mind and imagine that you are again an eight-year-old kid longing for adventure, excitement and really wild things. Anyway, the plot progresses, Joe steals the MiG-242 as per his mission, and then it's Anderson action all the way. As you'll hear in this clip. Sam Louver from Joe 90. Okay, Joe. Loud and clear. Sam, I'm approaching the Russian border. My instruments tell me that I've got three MiG-242s on my tail. They're about 200 miles behind me. So I'm going to turn and shoot it out with air-to-air -air missiles. Over. But Joe, isn't that kind of dangerous? Red one and red two, this is red leader. Bandit has turned to intercept. Stand by air-to-air -air missiles. The action set pieces are everything you'll want from a Jerry Anderson show. The battle between the MiGs is quite static, but well done for the time, with the usual superlative model work and explosions. If there's a feeling of deja vu, it's possibly because the MiG is a repurposed Angel Interceptor from Captain Scarlet, and some of the explosions are taken from the movie Thunderbird 6. After taking out the MiGs, Joe takes on ground-to-air missiles, leading Joe to then attack the Russian base to prevent further attacks. Nine-year-old Joe seemingly has no problem blowing people out of the sky. From there, Joe flies to Manston in Kent and lands the MiG-242 with no problems. However, when the plane is greeted, there is no one in the pilot's seat. Armoured Vehicle 1 to Control Tower. There is no pilot. The cockpit is empty. We can't have got very far. Search the area and bring anyone who saw the landing up here for interrogation. Roger, will do. Now, 
let's go over this once again. You were very close to this aircraft when it landed. Yes, sir. That's right, sir. Now, when the aircraft stopped, you say the canopy opened, the pilot jumped out and ran to the airfield perimeter. Is that right? Yes, sir. Now, think very carefully. What age did you estimate the pilot to be? As I said before, sir, as far as I could tell, he were about nine year old. Nine years old, eh? And then you say, when he reached the airfield perimeter, he jumped into a waiting car. That's right, sir. That's just what he did. And now I expect you'll tell me that the car rose into the air and flew away. As a matter of fact, sir, that's exactly what did happen. Well, you've pulled it off, Joe. A MiG-242 completely intact in the hands of the West. Oh, boy, what an achievement, eh? The requisite Anderson hardware is all present and correct, with Mac in possession of a special jet aircar that can also fly, the setup for the big rat is suitably impressive, and all the aerial combat scenes are model work at their finest. The jet aircar isn't perhaps one of the Anderson team's better designs, but its wish fulfilment angle is undeniable. And, you know, it, it's still pretty cool. After ditching the MiG, Joe flies off in the car with his Uncle Sam. See what they did there? And the premise for the series is set up. And so, Professor McLean, that was the sort of operation that could be handled by your boy Joe with the assistance of the Big Rat. Of course, we all know there is no such aircraft as the MiG-242, and indeed there is no conflict between Soviet Russia and the West. I simply made up that little story to illustrate the sort of thing Joe could do to help us, if we had your approval. No, 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 Professor McLean. You really expect me to... Dad, you've got to let me do it. Keep out of this, Joe. Go on, son. Now, Max, now look. You look, Mr. Weston. Although Joe is not my real son... But we know all... Mary died, that boy has meant more to me than... we know all that. No boy ever had a better father. You expect me to risk his life. Just try to see our side. It's out of the question. Professor McLean, the opportunity's here to prevent war. find someone else. To save human life. Joe's life comes first. Make new discoveries. Just hold it, will you? Think of the potential, Mac. But Joe is so young. You won't regret it, Mac. I hope not, Sam. I hope not. Thanks. Joe! Can I do it, Dad? Can I work with Uncle Sam? I suppose so. If you're sure you want to. But don't come crying to me if you get hurt. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Uncle Sam. Mr. Weston, can I ask you a question? Why, uh, sure, Joe. What is it? When do I get my badge? Right now, Joe 90. Right now. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What was, what was that, that line of dialogue? I simply made up that little story to illustrate the sort of thing Joe could do to help us. None of this was real. What the actual fuck kind of cop-out's that? Now, yes, Anderson did a number of dream episodes, but rarely did they cheat the viewer like this one does. One also has to love Mac's line, well, don't come crying to me if you get hurt, or, you know, killed. The show then undercuts its own premise. Having the characters say that Russia isn't the enemy anymore because nobody spies on anyone kind of nullifies the show's entire existence. I get that Joe 90 was closer to the then-present day than any of the other Super Marionation shows, 
only about 50 years into the future rather than the 100 years of Thunderbirds or Captain Scarlet, but this world spy network seems to be redundant. Also, if it's only 50 or so years into the future, then it's set round about now. Anderson has said that he wanted to portray a world where the old grudges had all but been forgotten, but it's difficult to do a spy show if there are no enemies to spy on. The conclusion, where the adults argue over a series of still images rather than have the puppets gesticulate wildly, is actually really effective. More effective than it would have been if we'd seen the puppets argue. That would probably have been laughable. The stills ironically have the effect of appearing more animated than the puppets moving, especially when accompanied by the angry shouting. The voice actors are, as usual, a mixture of new people and Anderson mainstays. Joe is played by Len Jones, who Anderson felt gave a reasonable performance, which seemed a tad harsh for a young actor. Jones is fine, the problem is that Joe doesn't really have a lot of personality for him to work with. His father, Ian, was voiced by Rupert Davis, and Sam was Keith Alexander, who had a decent career in Anderson shows, featuring in UFO, Thunderbirds, and Anderson's feature film, Doppelganger. You, lovely listener, may know him best as the newsreader from Superman the Movie. The guy who Clark watches in the window of the television store and then who Lex is watching when he gets out of the the swimming pool. The head of Wynn, Shane Weston, was played by David Healy, like Alexander and Anderson regular. The McLean's cleaner, who you did not hear in this episode, was voiced by Sylvia Anderson. Most of the actors did double and indeed triple duty on the series. Ultimately, this first episode is quite odd. UFO would also be more concerned with setting the series up in its first show rather than telling an actual story. But at least that doesn't whip the carpet out from under the viewer as this did, leaving a sour taste in the mouth. More so than the questionable premise. I don't see why this couldn't have been an actual mission for Joe, with Russia substituted for by some fake nation that has a MIG-like fighter and is using it to boost their own standing in the world to the point of warmongering. That could have worked just as well as this and wouldn't have required the episode actually being a monumental waste of everybody's time and talent. I can't wrap my head around making a pilot episode an imaginary tale. Once again, it undercuts the entire show. So, to give Joe a fur crack of the whip, should we look at a couple of normal episodes, should we? Breakout was written by the late, great Shane Rimmer and directed by Leo Eaton. Shane Rimmer, like Keith Alexander, was in Superman 2, where he portrayed the NASA administrator working alongside Cliff Clavin. Everything comes back to Superman. This episode sees Joe and Mac in Canada, visiting an old friend for a short holiday, when two convicts escape with a plan to kidnap the Canadian president and make mucho moolah. But they get more than they bargain for when they also kidnap Joe 90. This episode may not be as normal as planned, as it's apparently the first and only episode to not have Joe being sent on a mission by Wynne, rather he kind of just blunders into it by accident whilst on holiday. Nevertheless, the episode is very pleasingly written by actor Rimmer. Joe and Mac are holiday in Canada near the area where the president will be attending a conference. Whilst there, he will receive a cannon gun salute near a statue of his relative. The president is on his way to this conference via a train, which is in sight of the cannon. All of this is set up at the beginning of the story very well, very cleverly, and with only a small amount of exposition. The cannons using real ammo is justified, and the criminal's plan to blow the bridge and hold the president hostage is also set up early doors. For the holiday, Joe has the brain implants of an Olympic tobogganist, purely for recreational purposes. Of course, this will come in useful later, as will a special talent the tobogganist has that Joe is, as of yet, unaware of. 
The criminals carry out their dastardly plan, killing the Canadian Mounties who are guarding the cannon, and then using said cannon to blow the bridge the President will travel over, trapping the President. The Canadian authorities agree to send Joe in with the ransom. Whilst Joe was not as violent or as adult as Captain Scarlet, there are still a number of gruesome scenes in this episode, including the convict's escape, which sees them kill the prison guards outright. They then assassinate the Canadian Mounties guarding the cannon and get into a shootout with a nine-year-old boy who himself shoots one of the convicts, clearly aiming to kill. Joe even gets shot himself. Can you imagine any kid show of the era, hell of any era, allowing the central character to be shot? Especially when they're only nine. With the money delivered by Joe, the convicts make their getaway, using Joe as insurance against attack. Joe wrestles the controls of the escape helicopter away from the convicts, knocks them out with some fancy flying, and then lands the chopper back at the base. But how could he fly a helicopter, you ask? Well, Mac asked the same question. Joe? Yes, Dad? How did you fly that helijet? The brain pattern of a jet sleigh driver wouldn't have helped. I don't know, Dad. I just felt I knew how to do it, and I did. Joe, either these brain patterns aren't wiping clean, and you're retaining some of them, or we've had a mix-up in the tape numbers. Well, I don't know the answer, Dad. Let me just check. Here it is. Ah, Guy Flambeau. Three times Olympic bobsleigh champion. What does it say just below that? All-round sportsman, billiards champion, crack shot, and holds a helicopter pilot's license. Well, I'll be... What's that you've always told me about reading the small print, Dad? Now this was more like it. Breakout is well-structured with some great action sequences. Model work is of the highest quality, as you would expect. It's also very well-paced and fast-moving, the limited cast allowing for greater emphasis on character and action. And boy, is this action-packed. Bobsleigh rides, helicopter attacks on moving trains, gunfights and jailbreaks. Joe 90 is exquisite fun. There's a clear demarcation here between this show and the watered-down drivel of the 80s that was being made when I was growing up. No tedious moralising or what have we learned today, Timmy? Just high-quality fun and a few gratuitous murders. I'm beginning to think Joe 90's reputation is undeserved. So let's give it another shot, should we? And we'll watch Splashdown, also written by Rimmer, this time with Tony Barwick, and directed again by Leo Eaton. This episode is a more traditional Joe 90 adventure. Joe is tasked by Wynn to learn why two plane crashes have resulted in the disappearance of two electronics experts. So again, on the violent side of it, the bad guys for this episode have crashed two planes full of people just to kidnap two electronic experts. Joe decides to use his dad as bait and Mac and Joe must learn what on earth is happening. I have to admit... Having watched the episode, I'm still not sure what's happening. If the story explained exactly why these people killed two plane loads of passengers just to kidnap two electronic experts, then I must have missed it. The foiled kidnapping of Mac is even more baffling. Still, Splashdown is another fun episode, although not as action-packed or as tightly written as Breakout. Overall, though, Joe 90 was a pleasant surprise. I'm still scratching my head as to why this is held in such low regard by Anderson fans. It's as action-packed as Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet, and has just as high a body count as the latter. 
I can only assume there's a residue of the playground taunts, plus the notion that because a child is at the centre of the drama, then Joe 90 is somehow a more childish endeavour than Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. I'll be honest, I didn't really think that was the case. Sure, based upon these three episodes, Joe 90 wasn't as interested in world-building as Captain Scarlet, and didn't have the characterization of Thunderbirds, but at only 25 minutes, the episode's fur rattled along with little to no padding. The requisite Anderson visuals, explosions, and pulse-pounding music were all in place, and as with most of the Anderson shows, this was great fun to watch. All of the episodes are on archive.org, probably illegally, but go and watch a few. They're much better than you think. Time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. Let's crack on with a few emails, should we? Hi, Andy. Space Cops, huh? I should say hi, Andy, after I do the, the title, shouldn't I? It's Liz Ann Oswald again. Sorry I missed Star Cops, but I don't think it was ever sent across the pond. But the lead was a person who was completely on PC to the point of almost annoying, but mostly a good person. And they do the best they can with what they're trying to do. He sounds like me and my YouTube channel. That's Liz Ann Oswalt on YouTube. Mostly I like murder mysteries, and adding space to it could make it great, like the few episodes of Voyager I liked before Seven of Nine showed up where Tuvok played detective. Same with DS9 with Odo or Dax as a detective. Um, Dax 2, not Jadzia. She was my fave version of Dax. Sadly, she only had one case with the crazy killer Vulcan. Or Data as Sherlock with Geordi. Or Picard as Dixon Hill. Not sure if Enterprise ever did a detective show like that, but Orville had a few with their second officer. Can't wait to hear the next podcast, mainly if Star Cops had a bit more pew-pew, or if it's more like Zero Wolf. Nero Wolf, it would have had more fans at the time. Oh, well. 
Uh, thank you, Lizanne. Um, who's next? Click, click. Uh, Palace of Glittering Lights 117, Jodie Whittaker is Regan Jew. Hello, Regan. Hi, Andy. Thank you for doing an episode on Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. You provided an informative background of her and how she was selected. I had no idea that Broadchurch has a third Doctor in actor David Bradley. On the fantastic cast, I don't think co-host Stephen Lacey partakes in fantasy casting, but I think you'd mentioned picking Kristen Bell to portray Susan Richards in his storm. I like Kristen Bell, but I only really enjoy her on Veronica Mars or Frozen. I tried watching her in other roles. She's okay in them, but not on the level of the character of Veronica. This is similar to how I view Tom Selleck and the character of Magnum. I would pick Jodie Whittaker as an MCU Invisible Woman. She's proven she can play a mom and speak sci-fi jargon. If Chris Evans can play two Marvel characters, then maybe David Tennant could play Reed Richards in addition to his stint on Jessica Jones. The catch is that they should play the parts with their British accents. If they did American accents, it might be distracting. Now, how do you explain that Reed and Sue are British? Maybe just treat it as a what-if alternate reality. The FF were formed in Britain in 1961. Then Reed discovers a way to cross dimensions. That would explain their absence in the MCU before Disney bought Fox. Thanks, Reagan. Well, I think in the multicultural society in which we live, or are trying to live, I don't think you need to explain it anymore. Reed and Sue could just happily be working for a NASA-like organisation in America and still have British accents. Um, I mean, go for, if you're going to go for that, leave David Tennant with his Scottish accent. I think that would be perfectly fine. Thank you, Regan. Uh, our next email is from Keith Mason, the Palace of Chinese Curses. Hello, Andy. Thank you for the well wishes that were prompted due to the last email I sent to you. Uh, your well wishes to the Super Sam and the Mighty Rosie were also appreciated who send their hellos back at you. Uh, and Keith has done one of his, let's go through the whole, what have you covered recently? So let's delve into that, should we? Anything can happen in the next half hour. Stingray was a morning staple of summer holidays for both mine and my brother's childhood. And the opening theme tune is always one that stays with me. The phrase, anything can happen in the next half hour is indelibly printed on my mind. With its great visuals and underwater setting, it may not be the best of the Anderson shows, but it is often the most memorable. Just being reminded of it again was our delight. The Gloom Room Go-Go, with another Spider-Man in high school movie on its way. I always enjoy your retrospectives on Spidey's college years. Its character-focused plots and excellent art are always evidence that most adaptations miss out on some of the best parts of Spider-Man. This era continues to enthrall and entertain, and your passionate declaration of its merits, whilst never denying its flaws, is always a bright point in my comics-related podcast listening. Well, thank you. I very much enjoy doing the Spider-Man stuff. Doing Endgame before it was cool. When Voyager ended, it was with a whimper, not a bang. There was no joyous celebration, no touching denouement, just a shot of Earth, and that just pretty much summed up the last couple of seasons as a whole. After the strong showings of season four and five, season six and seven just sort of run out the clock, rather than give a triumphant closing as Deep Space Nine did. I enjoyed some of the episodes you mentioned, but when you get down to it, I enjoyed your looking at the episodes a lot more than when I actually watched them. So thank you at least for making them more entertaining. Dalek 63. Sylvester McCoy has the unfortunate distinction of being the doctor that got the show The Axe, although the damage had already been done long before his first scene. The stories were often as bad, the dialogue worse, and McCoy's performance choices bizarre. But Remembrance of the Daleks was different. It's a period setting which helped rather than hindered, and the effects were great for the time. The idea of a darker doctor was a good one, which fell at the first post by the showing being curtailed and with it took till the relaunch to get a more haunted doctor who had to make the harder choices again. There were many reasons to not like the McCoy era, the credits alone, but Remembrance was a reminder that you only need one to like it. I'm sure I still have a copy of Remembrance somewhere. 
No, not Space Precinct. The other cop show. It's funny you should mention Space Precinct, Keith, because that's on the docket. Because my mum bought me the DVD box set for Christmas. So I haven't cracked it open yet, but I would not be surprised to find that that becomes um, another one of the Jerry Anderson shows on this here show. I'll be completely honest, said Keith. I'd never heard of Star Cops till your episode, but I was certainly intrigued. Space Cops. It's not Space Cops, it's Star Cops. Everyone's calling it Space Cops. Star Cops was thoughtful, tense, and languidly paced. I can clearly see why this show didn't become a hit, but that doesn't mean it isn't good. Space without the opera. This was a bit of a hidden gem in the minds of forgotten TV shows. David Calder's Nathan Spring would be more at home in The Bill, but finds himself pushed into a job in orbit and finds himself forced to do a job he never wanted, but could only do to the best of his ability. He rubs people the wrong way, refuses to play politics, and has no time for incompetence. And when I watched a few episodes on YouTube, I found him to be a compelling lead, with equal parts gravitas and relatability. I may have to watch all nine episodes, because apparently I don't have enough to watch, as despite its flaws, it was very, very watchable. Exceptionally watchable Star Cops, one of those shows that had, uh, whose reputation has only got deeper in time. And then maybe you can cover it on one of your blogs, because you recently did an episode of Night Ride, which I, I greatly enjoyed. 20 minutes ago, I was a white-haired Scotsman. I was ready for a change. I enjoyed Capaldi's run as the Time Lord with his take being incredibly watchable, both when funny and when dramatic. But its focus on Clara and at times bleak tone, I was glad to see him leave the key to the TARDIS under the mat as he left. I waded through the nerd rage, passed by the doubts and naysayers, and did what I always did. Waited to see what the new Doctor would be like. I was not disappointed. While the role was traditionally male, there was nothing intrinsic to the role that had to be male. Time Lords had already shown they can alter gender and ethnicity, so why not the Doctor? Whitaker's Doctor was funny, compassionate, and when needed, resolute. It was a better episode than Capaldi's first, and Tennant's, to be honest. Only Matt Smith of the newer leads had a better first episode. Her Doctor was a lot like his, but still very much a new character. I enjoyed her description of becoming herself as being a pull towards being someone rather than being created full cloth. I enjoyed the larger cast and the new feel of the show, which got real shot in the arm from this new-look Doctor. Anyway, that's enough rambling. I just wanted to say thank you. Your podcast has been a comfort at a trying time, and listening to it when walking the dog or getting my lunch has taken the edge off the bad days and enhanced the good. My best to yours and a belated happy birthday, TTFN Keith. Well, thank you very much, Keith. It's always nice to hear from you. Like I said, I do enjoy reading your blogs. Uh, final email tonight before we have to call it a day, because again, I've got to go and do stuff, is from Jason Trenner, the woman who fell to earth and her police box somehow slammed into the homes of bunchy, whiny YouTubers. Hey, Andy, I have to say I completely agree on the whiny YouTubers thing, which is likely why you sublist on YouTube has none of them on it, and I wish for their channels to merely rot away as people get bored with them and unsub and just stop watching their content. Especially the idiots that somehow think that Discovery and the Picard series are really part of a different timeline from the original series, the animated series, the next generation, etc. Oh, well, I discussed that last time. They are maintaining that it is the timeline and it is the same timeline. I just don't buy that the bridge is the same. Sorry, it's just, I just don't accept that. On to the 13th Doctor. I have to be honest on one thing. Time Lords have been able to change gender. I only wondered about Missy. Not in a how dare they change the master, but in a so did he turn into a she on regeneration or possessing a female body? As, let's face it, with the master, either one is completely possible. It turned out the master gave the Blinovich limitation effect a rude hand gesture by managing to cause himself to regenerate twice. 
Plus the fact we've seen other Time Lords change genders on regeneration in the Twelfth Doctor story. So I had no problem with it being a thing Time Lords can do. What I have issues with on the 13th Doctor has been the limited number of episodes for the first season. And then this whole year without it. I mean, most people only do the rule for three years, so I consider that to be annoying. The other thing is having three companions is a bit much. On Rosa, I find it weird the villain was a guy who was thousands of years after the era of Jack Harkness really giving a crap about Rosa Parks. I know bigotry is irrational, but it's kind of deep from the history books for anyone to give a crap about by his timeline. Just think a more contemporary time frame for him to be from would have made more sense. I also have to comment, it does feel weird sometimes when talking to non-comic fans on things they don't know about. Comics that make me go, hmm, I could name way more obscure things or characters than that. Well, that was fun, and I look forward to seeing what will be discussed next on The Palace. Well, next time, I've not got a clue, I've not written it yet, it's one of them. Um, Nathaniel's email will be next, but he sent me a long one and I want to dig into it, and I haven't got the time to do that now. So, thank you very much for emailing in. Hey kids, comics at verdimedia.com is what you can email me on. I'll end with, it's all going to be alright, but I'm being severely taxed. <laughs> By that maxim at the minute. If you've seen who our potential Prime Ministers are. Um, but oh, no, let's maintain our optimism. Everything's going to be okay. Eventually. Possibly. Maybe. <laughs> See you next time.